Um, okay. Okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Chabura Shiur. Thank you so much for your patience. And thank you so much, Asaf, for that uh, beautiful Udbun edition. Uh, today is the seventh installment of our eight-part series on the Halachot of Kashrut by Rabbi Yonatan Halavi. Today we are diving into the Halachot of Givinat Akum. We are very close to becoming Kashrut experts. Um, as usual, all our classes are recorded and available on our website. Uh, regarding questions and comments, um, unless you have something really, really pressing, please write your questions in the chat box or simply remember them till the end when we will have time for questions. Uh, the sources are posted on the chat box for all to follow along, and I'll post them up again. Uh, with that said, thank you so much, everyone, for joining. And Chacham, uh, it's always a privilege to have you with us, and the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Ohad, and to the Prelude Asaf, We are studying together the Halakhot of Givina of Cheese. And as you may have looked at my other source sheets, you've been with us for the last seven weeks, you'll have noticed that the source sheets are about 17 pages, 20 pages, 22 pages. Uh, today's source sheet is 34 pages long. And so I want to echo what uh, Ohad said just a minute ago, and that is, I understand that we have questions. I will answer questions. So if there's a question that just it's getting in the way, you can't understand what's happening next, please feel free to ask it. Uh, but questions that intend to repeat a point or clarify a point or ask me something that's a tangent, I will stay here for as long as you need after the shiur. For me, it's the middle of the day. And so I will, as I always do, stay here even for half an hour after the shiur. I'm happy to answer all of those questions then. I rarely choose to jump into the lion's den. Sometimes I do. Like there are certain things that I've chosen. That's my crusade. I'm going to, that's the altar that I wish to die on. Uh, the cheese thing in Judaism is not my altar. So that's not where I choose to die. I know that for many people, this is not just a, a topic of much um, importance, but it's a topic of much passion, and they're very uh, set in how they understand these halachot, and that's wonderful. And Baruch Hashem, that's why the Chavura offers a selection of teachers to choose from. When you know, like when you're on an airline, uh, we know you have many options when flying. Thank you for choosing Delta Airlines. So many options when learning the Chavurah. I thank you for flying with me, uh, and while you're flying with me, I hope to share with you my perspective on these halachot as I see them. My rabbi, Harav Peretz, when he was a young man, went to go take his Simicha exams, then from the Ashkenazi chief rabbi, Yerushalayim, Rabbi Zolti was his name, and Harav Peretz studied very well the laws of Basar B'chalav, meat and milk, and the laws of Tarubot, all the forbidden food combinations. And let's just say that in the laws of Melicha, salting meat, that wasn't his most proficient area. And so when he came to Rabbi Zolti, he would ask him a question, about Basar B'chanat, he would answer him. Tavulot, he would answer him. And when it came time to ask questions on Melicha, every single question that Zolti asked him on Melicha, he said, you know, that reminds me of a shach in Basar B'chanat. That reminds me of a taz in Tavulot. That reminds me of something in Hechot Shabbat. He would drag him somewhere where he was more comfortable answering those questions, and that was his tactic for getting through a Semicha exam. Of course, he told us that in preparation for our Semicha exams, and I am telling this to you, in preparation for the Mishnah that you and I are about to study. Rarely do we find the Mishnah with this type of personality, if I could call it that. And I want to read, focus your attention on page one. Page one, source one, Amar Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Yehuda said, Sha'al Rabbi Yishma'el at Rabbi Yehoshua k'shayum harchin baderef. Rabbi Yishma'el asked Rabbi Yehoshua all kinds of questions while they were walking along the road. 
That's the fulfillment of what the Torah says, that you must study Torah. Sitting in your home, when you walk on the road, when you lay down, when you wake up. So study Torah is a constant effort. We don't just sit down one hour a day, study Torah. Our whole life is the study of Torah. Maybe if I could share with you some milta de'agadata, some words that don't belong in the shield. There's a famous Mishnah. The Mishnah says that someone who's walking along the road and studying Torah while they're walking along the road, and they stop and they see a tree, and they say, wow, how beautiful is that tree? The Mishnah says, This person is, I don't know if the exact translation is liable for the death penalty, but they're, they're causing immense damage to their soul. Let's translate it that way. And it's a little bewildering. What's the big deal? You're walking down the street. You notice a beautiful creation of a Kadosh Baruch So you pause from learning to laugh. And you say, how wonderful is that tree? I heard from some that suggest the proper reading of this Mishnah is, and I'm not telling you this is Peshat, that when you walk along the road and you're studying Torah, and then you see a beautiful tree, and you think that for one moment, the appreciation of nature of a Kadosh Baruch Hu, is somehow divorced from your study of Torah. So much so that you must stop studying Torah in order to appreciate the beauty of the tree. Then you've told him Mr. Point and what the Torah is trying to do for you. The whole world is a wholesome limut Torah. And so when you find two Chachamim that are traveling together, it shouldn't surprise you that they're also studying Torah. What is the reason that they prohibited the cheese of non-Jews. Because they, uh, they curl the cheese. How do you take this? You take cheese, the way you make cheese, you take dairy, milk, and you pour inside of it a curdling agent. Most of the time, in the times of the Talmud especially, they were using the lining of the cow's stomach. It has an enzyme inside of it. We call it rennet today. And that is what curdles the cheese. I'm not an expert in cheese making, so if you're a little more proficient in how to make cheese, and my, my uh, uh, layman explanation of cheese making is not sufficient, then you're welcome to look in the encyclopedia afterwards. It's because they use the keva, the stomach of a nivela, of an animal that was not slaughtered, meaning it died. And then he tells them that, oh, kevat kevat nivela. He said, but there's other kevot that are worse than that of a nivela. Why not that? Chazal, he changed his mind. The Malo, no, that's not the reason. The reason is because they use the stomach lining of the calves that were used for idol worship. Malo, Rabbi Ishmael tells him, Rabbi, if that's the case, if that's the reason, we can't eat cheese from Goim because they use the stomach lining of cows that were used in the worship of idols. Why did the Chachamim not tell us that it's forbidden to receive any benefit from the cheese of non-Jews? If you're dealing with something that has a connection to idol worship, then it's not just eating it that you can't do. You can't even sell it. You can't be involved in it. What does Libya that do? He see all the He dragged the conversation to somewhere else. He didn't want to answer his question. Amarlo, he says, Yishmael, Yishmael, my brother. How do you read the verse of Shir Hashirim? Because the translate here in English? Because your dodecha, your love is better than wine. Let's pretend that's what we're reading here, okay? Or because in feminine, dodaich. 
אמר לו, כי טובים דודייך, אמר לו אין הדבר כן, שהרי חברו מלמד עליו לריח שמניך טובים. The next verse is written in the masculine, and therefore you must read the, the, the end of the verse, the masculine, the beginning of the verse must be masculine also. I'm sure if you study this Mishra on an Agadic level, there's a reason why this random Midash and Shir Hashirim appears here. We're not here to study Agadah today. What I can tell you is that Rabbi Ishmael asked a good question. And Rabbi Huna didn't have a good answer. And what did he do? He decided to drag him somewhere else so he would stop this line of questioning and end up somewhere else. You know, my kila, every Shabbat afternoon, we have a shiul, a Q&A session. And over there, the rule is there's no cameras. Finally, there's no YouTube, there's no podcast, nothing comes out of it. We don't record on Shabbat. And so because of that, we're able to talk about all kinds of things that we want to talk about if they were for public consumption. And I always tell them, listen, I know the questions are good. I hope that my answers are as good as the questions. Unfortunately, in this department, Rabbi Huda clearly either didn't want to answer him, didn't, didn't answer him for whatever reason, and distracts him to a different conversation. Before we understand exactly what happened in this Mishnah, let's really ask the question, why are cheeses of Goyim prohibited? What is it from the non-Jewish cheese that makes that cheese prohibited to us? Number two, source two, Talmud Bavli. The Gemara says, Uh, let's look on page two. On the bottom right column. The reason why he didn't want to answer his question is because it was a new decree. And being that it was a new decree, we don't scrutinize it or its origins. When the rabbis make a decree, we accept the decree. We don't dig into that decree too much. We don't publicize the reasoning behind the decree. Uh, unless someone come and maybe say, oh, it doesn't make any sense. I don't want to follow it. We don't give room to questioning a new gezera of our rabbis. My gezera, so our rabbis are trying to say, what exactly is the gezera? So, Rabbi Shimon Bipazi says in the name of Rabbi Ushab and Rabbi, Mishum Nikum, the reason why we're not allowed to have cheese from non-Jews is because of Nikul. Now we call Nikul in Sephardi tradition when we puncture the animal and we rid it of the Gid HaNasheh, the Sayyadaka Nur. But here Nikul in the Gemara, we see Nikul, puncture means by a snake. There's a prohibition of drinking certain beverages, for example, water left out overnight for the reason that maybe a snake will come and put its venom inside of the water. Now, Malana Shukhan already says that today we don't live with snakes. I mean, the only time you might have a pet snake in your house is if you have one that's a pet. But for the most part, those of us intentionally have homes that are proofed in such a way that we don't have snakes and scorpions running around our home. And therefore, there's no reason to prohibit uh, water that was left out overnight. But it's because of Niku. Maybe a snake will come and inject his venom. I mean, they're not careful about covering their, their milk or their cheese. And we will then be in a danger of Sakana because of the snake venom. When they make a decree in the West, so they explains that until 12 months have passed from when the rabbis make a decree, we don't give the reason for the decree so that someone won't hear it and then make a commotion about it and get rid of that decree. says, I think that this idea of Yosur ben is ludicrous. Because of snakes, that's the reason why we can't... Uh, uh, eat the cheese. There's all kinds of other things then that we should prohibit because of snakes. 
So let's skip down to the bottom. Rabbi Chalinan. Rabbi Chalinan says, but you should eat shara below tzichtuchei chalan. The reason we can't is because we know that the milk, maybe the milk is not kasher. What happens? We said last week already that if you curdle milk and it turns into cheese, then you already know that that milk is kasher. Now, what would happen if there's a combination of milk, or maybe there's not kasher, whatever it would be? So he's saying we're worried about. And there are other ways to interpret this gemara. I'm just reading it simply. There's the residue of the, the leftover milk that is on the surface of the cheese. So the cheese itself is kasher because we know it's now. Now we can verify that it's kasher cheese. But the the liquids that are on the surface of the cheese. They are not kasher, and because of that, we can't eat the cheese. Ushmuel Amar, then Shmuel says, "Lipnei Shema Midin Ota Beor Kevat Nevera." He says the reason is because they curdled the cheese in the stomach lining of an unslaughtered animal, so that is a nevera. So so far, we have a number of reasons, either because of snakes, scorpions, or because of the um, the problem of the residue of non-kashel milk, now because of the stomach lining of the animal, I am going to skip a few more paragraphs. We'll look on page three in the left-hand column. He has a unique suggestion. And he said it's because they coat the cheese with a fat of pigs. Right? Well, that's what he said. Because they use vinegar. What's the problem with vinegar? It comes from wine. Wine could be a real problem. So because they use vinegar to curdle the cheese, we're afraid of the non-kasher vinegar inside of the milk. Because they use the sap. That's from an Ola tree, which is prohibited to us. And because of that, we're not allowed to have this cheese. The Gemara continues in a number of different places. And ultimately, you look at this Gemara and you say, the Chachami made a Gezera. But the reason for the Gezera initially wasn't given, because we don't give reasons for the Gezera when it's too fresh of a Gezera. But then when they start giving us reasons of the Gezera, uh, we see all kinds of things that are they clearly are, it seems It seems almost like we threw the arrow and now we're trying to come up with the target around it. Like, why did we throw this arrow? What's the reason for this? What's the prohibition here? That's why I believe that it's important to look at the Rambam's understanding of the Mishnah. And the Rambam, as he always does for us, clarifies things so clearly. The Rambam, and this time I couldn't, I was using the regular Safari edition of the Rambam's and there were so the Hebrew is, is so poor for the translator that you can't, you simply don't understand what the Rambam wants from you. And so I I, I sat there and I, I scanned and I typed up this uh, Rav Kapach Rambam for you just so you could see the way Rav Kapach he understands uh, the Arabic and translates into beautiful Hebrew for us. Look at source three, which is on the bottom of page four, but really it starts on the top of page four on the left. Hatam sibat The reason why our rabbis did not tell us the reason for the prohibition. Because we were afraid it was too close to the time of the initial ruling, and people would come to mock that ruling. So we know it. And therefore, was the practice when the rabbis would prohibit something by method of gezerah. They would wait for the gezerah 
to a year to pass. Why a year? By then, everybody was doing it. Imagine here, the woman, the nation, everybody, even the people not in the Bedem Midrash, they already caught on. It became the new fad. Think about uh, the Kashrut world that you know. Somebody comes up with a Chumrah last week. Tomorrow, not everyone's going to be doing that Chumrah, but give it a year, and every rabbi in the world is going to tell you you have to do whatever they decided last year. A similar idea here, the Havdim, uh, by these Gezerot. It takes time to catch on. Once it catches on, and then afterwards, they tell everybody that was the decree, now is the reason. So that's the reason why he didn't answer him. But what's the reason for why we can't eat cheese of goyim? Says the Rambam, And the reason why the cheese is prohibited us, Because they will, maybe they will come to make our cheese with non-kashir animal rennets, meaning from the unslaughtered animal. And we know that the slaughter of a non-Jew is halakhically considered to us a nevelah. And you might think, hey, I can't put rennet from an animal inside of the milk to make cheese because of a prohibited mixture of meat and milk, no? And let me remind you of halakha here. The prohibition of eating meat and milk together only applies to meat that was cooked with milk. The meat has to be kasher, the milk has to be kasher, and both of them have to be cooked together. You are forbidden from eating that meat and milk that was cooked together, you're forbidden from getting benefit from it, and you are forbidden from actually cooking it. But cold meat and milk that were mixed together, the prohibition there is only a rabbinic prohibition. So the difference between a grilled cheeseburger with the cheese grilled on top of the burger and a salami sandwich, and please nobody walk out of the shield saying, oh, it's Rabbi Halevi stuff. He said you can have salami sandwich with cheese. I didn't tell you that. I'm just telling you that that prohibition is a rabbinic prohibition. The prohibition of meat and milk and mixing together is only prohibited when you can taste the meat. There's so little rennets here, you don't taste the animal inside of the cheese. But the prohibition is because of the non-Jewish slaughter. And the reason why we cannot say that it's nullified 1 in 60, really it's not that much rennet that has to go when you see the cheese making process. These huge vats of cheese, they pour rennet into. But there is certainly 60 times more milk than there is rennet. It's because it is a davar ha-ma'amid. Davar ha-ma'amid. And next week we're going to talk about gelatin and those things. Don't ask me to show today about next week. A devah something that is used to, to form the product. Meaning, it's not a nullified ingredient. The rennet is what makes the milk into cheese. You can't nullify something that is the primary ingredient of something. And you can sense that, the, I mean, you can tell that this milk is now cheese because of the rennet. And now all of that milk is considered nevela. Like any other forbidden mixture, when the forbidden thing is not lost, not only is it not lost, but it's there. Not only is it there, but it's the primary ingredient of this cheese. It's hyper milk. It's what makes this into cheese. Then it makes the whole cheese prohibited. And even if the prohibited thing was tiny, we don't do any of these 160th rules or 100th rules or anything else like he explains elsewhere. 
In the next paragraph, I broke up the Ramam into paragraphs. It's one paragraph. And the ma'amid, the, the curdling agent, the, the one that makes it into cheese, is more stringent than something that sours or seasons. The kachamun, rabbis told us, the status always goes after what made this into cheese. But the stomach lining of the cow itself, I mean, the, the, the cow's stomach, cow's stomach is actually permissible. Because cow's stomach is not really part of a cow, halachically. Our rabbis don't consider the stomach of a cow meat. It's considered something that came out of a cow, but it's not actually cow. This is what the Ramam tells you. We're not worried here about the kashrut of the cow stomach. You can go to the goyim and buy their cow stomachs, meaning it's not a real kasher. The cow is kasher, of course, but the slaughter was done properly. You can buy those cow stomachs and use them in your home to make cheese. The prohibition is on them making the cheese with the cow stomach. Therefore, if we see the non-Jew, we see him pour the milk into the cow stomach. That was the old way of making it. You take the cow stomach, you pour milk, you tie it up, and it would turn into cheese inside of the cow stomach. But let's say you do it the other way. We see the non-Jew pour the rennet into the vat of milk. This is it's permissible for us to eat that cheese. And no other method works. You can't assume, you can't hear, you can't. It's not like the other rules, like Chalav Israel or others. This has to do with the Jewish person seeing the process. That is what makes the cheese kasher. So everything you learned with me last week about Chalav Israel, you have to forget it for this Gezerah here of giving that. Last week we already shown that Chalav Israel is not actually prohibition. It was something that our rabbis taught us in order to make sure that we consume kasher milk. Here, this has, it has to do with kashrut, yes. But it's not a matter of kashrut. Even if you are certain that this cheese is kasher, you still can't eat it unless the Jewish person supervised the pouring of the rennet into the milk or the milk into the cow stomach. Then if you want to ask me, says the Rambam, why is the cheese not prohibited because of the reason that it comes from milk that's not chalav Israel? Because the reason for that prohibition was maybe they'll mix the not kosher milk with kosher milk and we're going to consume not kosher milk. The kalal huetzenu, and there's a rule in our hands, the milk of a non-kosher animal does not curdle. And therefore the only prohibition that is left in terms of cheese is because they use a nevela cow stomach in order to make the cheese. And this is a rabbinic decree, not a matter of kashrut of meat and milk. So get that out of your head. It's not a problem to mix the cow stomach with the milk. In America here, there was a certain company that put out uh, these cauliflower pancakes. And in there, it has cheese. It's kasher. It has the hashem and everything from the whatever company. And in there, it says, yeah, it can't be kosher. You have to recall this product. It says, uh, kosher animal enzymes in the cheese. What kind of crazy people put meat inside the milk? And 
the Jewish community over and over shows its booth, its ignorance of halacha when it thinks that cheese traditionally is made with meat. That's how you make cheese. And it's allowed. Because according to halacha, that meat is not meat. And all the things that we were told otherwise, okay, stop listening to people and start reading more of the Mams Pilush on the Mishnah. That's all I can tell you. I don't really want to study that. Now, Tosafot pops in here in source four. He has a slightly nuanced understanding of this Basal Bechalab issue. I don't want to get into it right now. Let's look at the more exciting Tosafot in source five. Why is this Tosafot exciting? For those of you who are familiar with the methodology of Tosafot, uh, you sometimes realize that they are, some would call creative when it comes to Talmudic rulings. I don't like the word create. Sometimes it's almost uh, disregarded entirely of, but they're creative in their disregarding of Talmudic rules. And as such, you're going to read a creative Tosafot here that the Sephardic Chachamim emphatically reject, but Tosafot says anyways. Uh, let's call them Vomer Abenutam, the bold part. Abenutam says in page five, source five, there is no clear reason to prohibit non-Jewish cheese. Because the real reason why we're not allowed to eat cheese from Goyim is because of the reason of Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi who said it's because of the snakes. Because in the rules of deciding which Chachamim, we follow, and which we don't. Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi trumps Rabbi Yochanan, and certainly he trumps Shemuel. And he tells us, and it's not just his opinion, that in many places we find that Chachamim Ashkenaz rule like Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi over the others, and therefore Rabbi Tam says the real reason for why we're not allowed to have cheese from Goyim is because of the snake venom. And therefore, therefore, if we live in a place like today, where we're not worried about snake venom, then all the cheese of the goyim, there's no real clear reason to prohibit. Notice that he doesn't say it's permissible. We're going to pick on that later. But he says there's no clear reason to prohibit it anymore. Now the next paragraph, and I made us about the paragraphs just so we can have some clarity of thought. You don't have to worry about mixing in non-kasher milk there. Because the goyim are not stupid. They wouldn't put milk that doesn't curdle together with milk that curdles. I mean, they might cheat you by milk, but not by cheese. The only reason why it's prohibited is because of the snakes. And where we live, there are no problems of snakes putting their venom into the milk. And therefore, the cheese of goyim is permissible. And you cannot say the davar shebeminyanhu. And this is a matter, is a prohibition of minyan, meaning the rabbis of the Sanhedrin, the final Bedin Hadadol in Israel, they prohibited cheese and we're not allowed to get rid of it. We need another Sanhedrin to uproot this ruling. Because it is certain to me, says Rabbi Nutan, that the Chachamim who made this decree made it because of the snakes. And they intended that when there would be no snakes, the cheese of the grain would be permitted. And there are many places. They eat the cheese of goyim. Because they don't use rennet to make the cheese into cheese, but they use flowers. Meaning, they found another plant that is able to kernel milk, and therefore there's not a problem of kashut at all. This is what's called vegetable rennet. This is the original vegetarian rennet that is put into cheese that many of you have asked me over the years. 
And therefore, says uh, Tosafot, that in many places, forget the snakes. Even the matters of kashrut, we're not even worried about the animal lining of the stomach. Vigan gone narbon. Narbon, I think, in, in, they say narbon in English. And also those Chachamim in France, they permitted it because of the fact that the Goyim don't use animal uh, rennet anymore, but they use vegetarian rennet. Then he adds one last point. Nonetheless, in our place, that they use the stomach lining. There's some reason to prohibit he says there's a problem specific to his locale where they would salt this uh, cow line. He was worried about a mixture of basal b'chalav. And so he throws that in there in a place like where I live, there may be a problem. But again, the summary of Abin Utam, the only reason why the cheese is prohibited, nothing to do with chivat nivadas. He disagrees with the Rambam. The ruling is not Shemuel. We're not care about what Shemuel said in the Gemara. We care about Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi said. Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi said snakes. That's the only problem. And you'll tell me, but it was instituted by Sanhedrin. So if the reason disappears, you can't just get rid of a rule that a Sanhedrin made. We know that rule. Says Rabbi Nutam. That doesn't matter. What do you mean it doesn't matter? It doesn't matter because our Chachamim, when they made this decree, only instituted it in places where there were problems of snakes. And when there's no problem of a snake, our rabbis would agree that there is no gezerah in that place. So to summarize here, there's a tremendous difference between the way Rambam sees this Gemara and the way Rabbeinu Tam sees the Gemara. Now that shouldn't surprise you. But this is an unsettled debate. And it's going to be unsettled because you're going to find echoes of this later on in Jewish history. But before I get there, let me show you what the other Chachamim in the neighborhood were saying uh, about this prohibition. Let's look at the Rashba. The Rashba writes, Ugvina Putin. Censored. The cheese of non-Jews. The Rashba is writing a letter to a certain community. He says, I don't know who permitted you to eat the cheese of non-Jews. Unless the rabbis who told you it's okay, they incorrectly understood the Gemara, meaning they're mistaken. The reason we don't eat cheese of Goyim, like the Rambam, is because of the stomach of the non uh, of the non slaughtered animal the nevela. And these mistaken people will tell you that now that we are experts, we know that in our places they only use vegetables, meaning a vegetarian source, as a curdling agent. That the reason for the prohibition has disappeared, and therefore the decree of our rabbis has disappeared with it. And this is the mistake in their hands, says the Rasba. The prohibition of cheese was not made by your local rabbi in the neighborhood. The prohibition of cheese was made by the Chachmei Talmud. This is a Sanhedrin, it's a Bedina Gadol. They made a prohibition for us. He calls them Or Olam because the light of the world, our holy rabbis. They prohibited something. It's a davar and esar b'minyan. V'chol davar shen esar b'minyan. And everything that was prohibited in that fashion, afal pish, batem ta'am ha'isu, even though the reason is no longer relevant, en adam reshay levatino, no person has permission to get rid of a rabbinic decree, v'afilu imnimnu alav bedin achamehem. And even if another bedin comes along and says, we're going to repeal an earlier Talmudic law, en bedin reshay levatino, the only time they can is if the second betin is greater in number and in quality 
than the previous Bedin, which is obviously not the case. It's amazing to me, by the way, because we're coming up to Pesach, and I hear so many people telling me that the reason they cannot eat Kidniot and Pesach is because it's the decree that you're not allowed to uproot. And this decree that has been decreed by nobody, we don't know who decreed that decree. We don't know of a name of a Bedin or a Sanhedrin that actually formally prohibited Kidniot. We know many communities that didn't eat Kidniot, but no Gezeran and Bedin had all of anywhere, let alone in Yerushalayim. Yeah, we can't because we don't have a Bedin that is greater than that one. It's a faulty uh, argument. But here, by cheese, they don't seem to mind so much. But this one is really from the Talmud. Oh, then furthermore, also the second reason that maybe there is non-kasher milk that is still left as residue on top of the cheese. And even if you were to tell me that there's no problem of the gizera, there's still a problem of kashrut in that type of situation. So you see from the Rashba, that this is the devar hanesar b'minyan. It doesn't matter if the reason doesn't apply. You can tell me we have vegetable rennet, microbial rennet. It doesn't make a difference in the Rashba. The Chachamim prohibited cheese of goyim. They prohibited cheese of goyim. Period. End of story. Let's look at the next verse. Those of what? writes that in Eretz Canaan, everybody treats the cheese of the goyim in a prohibited fashion. And how dare a God-fearing person say the cheese of goyim is permissible? Source 8, the Magid Mishneh is a fascinating spin. I'm not bringing this to Halakha. But as I was looking yesterday, uh, he mentions that the reason why, he says there are all kinds of reasons why the Chachamim gave, which we read, why cheese is prohibited. But on the top of page 6, he says that there are Chachamim who say that the reason why cheese is prohibited is because our rabbis wanted to distance us from the non-Jews and their foods. Very similar to the bread of Goyim, and the food, the cooked foods of Goyim. Yeah, but this is really not an opinion that we use the halakha. I just wanted to bring it to you eh, for the sake of completion. In general, in the source sheets that I bring before you, I don't go through all the sources, and I don't have time to go through all the sources. But I bring you these sources, and I bring them in full. Like You'll see some Teshuvot. They're four pages long. Why did I bother you printing four pages? I know that you might not have those books at home, and I want to make sure that later, when you have a chance to review this material on Shabbat, or in a few years from now, wherever else it will be, you'll be able to look back and find what you were looking for and have it in full and not just random selections or quotes from different places. Now let's come to the tool. The tool, I think, is one of the most misunderstood chachamim in the world. The tool is an Ashkenazi chacham born in a Sephardic country, uh, trying to be an Ashkenazi rabbi in a Sephardic community that follows quasi-Ashkenazi customs and Sephardic customs and in a very confused way. For the Sephardim, he's too Ashkenazi to follow. For the Ashkenazim, he's too Sephardic to follow. Uh, in any which way, the two mentions the same thing. In source 8, on page 6, Givinat goyim asurot. The cheese of the goyim are prohibited, and there's kamatamim. The, the rabbis gave a few reasons for this. But then he quotes again, Katam HaRambam, the Rambam writes, Afilu im en lachush le'elu. Even if you're not worried about that, Kigon shiadua shemida ba'asabim ve'en ba'chalab tameh. That even if, even if, the cheese of the goyim was made with herbs, meaning asavim, vegetable sources, it's still a problem. Why? Let's look at the Rambam inside. Let's skip a second. Come to page 8. Let's look at page 8 for a moment. We'll read the Rambam and you'll get as uh, much clarity. In the bowl, on page 8 of the source Yud, Ugvinat ha-goyim says the Rambam in the laws of forbidden foods, chapter 3, the cheese of goyim is forbidden, um, permissible. Because the milk 
of goyim, if it's not kasher, it won't curdle. If it curdles, it tells you the cheese is kasher. But in the days of the rabbis of the Mishnah, they made a decree, a gezera, against the cheese of goyim. That they make the cheese with the nevela animal, and because of that, the rabbis of the Mishnah prohibited the consumption of non-Jewish cheese. So from a kashrut level, the cheese is kasher in Rambam. But the rabbis of the Mishnah came along and made a gizera. And the Rambam says, and if you'll tell me, that the amount of animal stomach they put in there is so small, the compared to the amount of milk they put, and why should it not be nullified because it's so small? Because it is the thing that turns it into cheese. And because the prohibited thing is what made it into cheese, then all of the cheese is prohibited. The Rambam adds one more section. Gnina, cheese. Please listen carefully to this Rambam. It will answer a lot of the questions I'm sure you have. Cheese, that the goyim use asavim, plants, meaning no animals involved aside from the milk. It's veg- vegetable rennet, vegetarian rennet. Oh, but make perot, they use some kind of fruit juice, to go on seref te'enim, like the sap of figs. Varehani karim bagvina, and you could tell that they're in the cheese, meaning that's what turned into the cheese. Horu miktat geonim. Some of the geonim ruled shehi asura, that it is forbidden. Shekvar gazru al kol givinat agoyim. Because they already ruled on all of the cheese of the goyim. Ben Whether they use permissible uh, curdling agents or prohibited curdling agents. Because of the prohibited curdling agents that exist. So the Rambam tells us that you would think that vegetable rennet and cheese would make the cheese kasher. So we can't do that. A small number of the geonim, they told us that that is prohibited, and it's included in the previous gizera. Now, I will tell you that there are other places where the Rambam tells us, that some of the geonim have said. But in those places, the Rambam usually brings another opinion that disagrees with that, who say. Here, the Rambam mentions, like that's what he understands the halakha to be. We're going to see this reflected in the writings of Maran in just a few minutes. The Rambam then says, on the top of you, somebody who eats cheese of goyim, or milk that is not kasher milk, meaning you didn't have a way to check that the milk was kasher. We beat him, uh, not comfortable blows, let's say that way. Now with me, let's go back to the tool. The tool was just telling us that according to the Rambam, Rambam page 6, verse 8, that according to the Rambam, this cheese is prohibited even when coming from a vegetable source. Malana the Bitu says, and this is a lengthy piece of the Bitu says, and I wish I could go through all of it with you, but the parts that I highlighted are important. He brings many chachamim that disagree with the stance of Rabbi Nutam. And if you look at the bottom of page six and the bottom, that even if you could tell me that they use vegetable remnant, says the Ramba, uh, Malan in the Bitu says, even so, it's forbidden to eat that cheese. Because this was prohibited as a rule by the rabbis in the Bedin, 
like the wine, and anything which was prohibited by the Sanhedrin, any place where the reason does not apply, but that decree was made by the Bedin HaGadol, then there's nothing you can do about it. The reason doesn't apply, but the law still applies. And even though the Rambam quotes his opinion regarding vegetable rennet in the name of some of the Geonim, it seems that that is the Rambam's opinion. Because if that was not the case, he would have mentioned those who argue with the Rambam, uh, with the Geonim. And because the Rambam did not bring those who argue with this yesh miktat, if some of the Geonim say, then that is the opinion of the Rambam to prohibit vegetarian cheeses as well, meaning cheeses that come from uh, milk, but the ingredient in them, the turtles them, is vegetarian. And on page 7, the Maran is now going to rebuke the Jews of Italy. And now this is a response to the Jews of Italy. That they eat the cheese of the Goim. And they rely on this opinion that they use flowers, meaning vegetable, rennet, to take the cheese and the cheese. So then they're not able to justify this. And he quotes it in the court of Rabbi Nutam. And he tries to show that Rabbi Nutam would also agree to what he's saying. Why? Because his Rabbi Nutam does not write that it's muta. Let's look here. It seems to me, Maran says, that it's possible Rabbi Nutam wasn't ruling that Ashkenazim can now go ahead and eat cheese of Goyim. Rabbeinu Tam wasn't telling you to go buy cheese of Goyim. Rabbeinu Tam was trying to give a logical explanation for why some people might not be so particular. It was a hora'ah, meaning it was a, a teaching, but it was not a ruling, a halachic ruling that he expected the world to follow. No, you don't have to accept Maran's understanding of Rabbeinu Tam. But if you look here on the left column, but especially in a place where the Rambam and the Rashbah say that these cheeses are prohibited, that they are the pillars of the world, they prohibit, all of the Jewish communities that we know of, they treated this in the same way, which is very interesting. If you look by milk of Goyim, there are many communities with varying customs, the same with butter of Goyim. Because the cheese of Goyim, aside from those select communities that followed Rabbeinu Tam, we know that almost all of them treated the cheese in the same way that Rabbam and Rashbad So they don't differentiate between vegetable rennet or animal rennet, and it's forbidden to separate yourself from the Jewish people. And to break the walls of the holy Jewish people. That the sages of the Mishnah of blessed memory, they made these rules for us, and we therefore don't have the right to just knock down any rules that we don't like. So, so far, I will tell you like this. We saw that the Rambam and Rabbi Nutam disagree as to the reason. The Rambam and the Rashbah telling us the reason is because of the stomach lining of the animal, which is in the Nivirat, and the Tosafot telling us that no, it's because of the scorpions, and because of that, it might not apply here. And Maran clearly understands that even the vegetable rennet, like the Rambam says in the name of some Gionim, is prohibited to us. Now what does Maran actually write in the Shulchan Aruch? 
Let's look on page 10. On page 10. This is a quote from Maran here. This is the whole section of Shukhanul. Uh, I wish I would do the butter today, but butter is not in my uh, syllabus for today. So that's halakha 3. Looks at halakha 2. On page 10, it's the top of the page, where it is bit. Givinot agoyim. The cheese of non-Jews. Asarum. Our rabbis prohibited them. Why? Because they curdle them with the stomachs of their slaughtered animals. Which to us is considered a nevedah. And even if they use vegetable rennet to make the cheese, the cheese is prohibited. This is what rules. Now, I know there are many Sephardic voices in the world that want to tell me all kinds of things about cheese. At the end of the day, it's really easy to be Sephardic when it fits our agenda. But sometimes we have to also be Sephardic when we need to be Sephardic. Meaning, it's not always the Mati Rasuri. Sometimes also we have the Maran, right? So Maran says, what am I going to do that? How can I get rid of Maran Laranda? Are there creative workarounds? We could talk about that soon. But the basic halakha, the cheese of the goyim is prohibited, whether it's animal rennet or it's vegetable rennet. That's what Maran writes. He doesn't write Ho'u Mitzat because the Rambam says that, the Rambam says that that is the law, and he's not worried about it. Hagan, the Ramah writes here, what about Ashkenazim? That is the custom of the Ashkenazim also. So even though the Ashkenazim, like the Baret, are supposed to make him lenient, the custom of Ashkenaz, by the time the Ramah comes on the scene, that is the Minhag. The end, we throw together, and it's forbidden to break down this fence. In love of Makom, Shunahagu Behem, Heter Mikadmonim. Says the Ramah, unless you live in a place where the earlier rabbis already had a minhag to be lenient. And how do you make non-Jewish cheese kasher? Maran doesn't say that. So Maran doesn't tell us. The Rambam tells us how to do it. The Rambam says it will come to the Mishnah as long as the Jew supervises the cheese making process, the cheese is kasher. The Ramah writes this here. And he says, if the Jew sees the cheese making process and the milking process, mutar is permissible. And that is the custom in all of our countries. Then if you saw the cheese making, but you didn't see the milking process, meaning you come to the factory and they already have the milk. Now they're just going to make the cheese and you're going to supervise that part. Yes, after the fact, you can permit it. For sure, that you can tell that because it turned into cheese, you can certainly know that that was all kasher milk and the non-Jew who was planning to make cheese wouldn't intentionally put something that wouldn't curdle in his milk. But it's forbidden to eat the milk that way, again, because you didn't see the milk and there's no way for you to know that this milk is kasher. Just, I'll read to you one halakha from Maran, the next one. The butter of non-Jews. If you see people who permit that milk, uh, the butter, you don't tell them anything. But if the majority of the community treats it in a prohibited way, they don't buy the butter of goyim, then you shouldn't buy the butter of goyim. In a place where there is no milk, then uh, if it's done in a certain way, then it's mutah. I don't want to deal with butter too. I just want to tell you that butter is in a different category than cheese, and butter is in a different category than milk, and there are varying customs regarding how we view butter. On page 11, the shach. 
the Shach introduces a famous opinion of the Shach. And it, he has some compelling proofs to his opinion. The Shach tells us that it's not enough like the Ramdam or Maran or the Ramah. That a Jewish person has to supervise the cheese making process. And that's what makes the cheese kasher. So understand here. The cheese made by Goyim with animal rennet is prohibited. The same cheese made with animal rennet with a Jewish person watching the animal rennet being put into the cheese is now 100% kasher. Says the Rambam, it has to do with the seeing of the Jew. This is the Gezerah. The Shach introduces something else. That our rabbis mentioned by cheese, the cheese of Goyim is prohibited. They don't use the words like they use by milk. The milk of Goyim that a Jew did not see the milking is prohibited. In that case, says the Shach, we clearly learn that the cheese has to belong to a Jewish person in order for that cheese to become kasher. And possibly the Jew even has to be the one turning it into cheese, putting the rennet inside that makes it kasher. Because if it was all about seeing the cheese making process, the Mishnah would have said, cheese and milk that a Jewish person did not see their process is a problem. But it says, milk that Jews did not see the milking process or cheese of goyim are prohibited. I mean, cheese of goyim is its own category of things that are prohibited. You need a Jewish person to be involved in the cheese making process. It's not enough just to supervise. And like that, the Shach, in a very long note in Source 1, he argues with everybody else and says, that the cheese has to be involved with, uh, the Jewish person has to be involved in the cheese making process itself, not just supervising it. By the way, in source two, the Gona Vilna says something very similar. The Gona Vilna, his comments on the Shulchan Aruch, he writes, the cause of the Shitato, all of this is according to the Ramah. I need the Jewish person not to supervise the cheese, he needs to make the cheese. He has to pour the red into the cheese. So if you buy cheese, and that cheese is supervised by a kosher agency. But the person who poured the cheese in was not Jewish. According to the Shach and according to the Gaon of Vilna, that cheese is prohibited because of Givinash and Goyim. Rabbi Avaham Dansi, one of my favorite Ashkenazi Chachamim in the world. Rabbi Avraham Dansi, <clears throat> otherwise known as Rabbi Avraham Danziger, from the place where he lived. He was not a professional Tamil I mean, he was a businessman. And he writes at the beginning of his book, Chayada. I know that when I publish my book of Halakha, many people will mock me. Because who am I to be writing books of Halakha? I'm not even a, I don't have a job as a rabbi. When did he have a chance to learn Torah? When he was traveling, when he was working, when he was selling things? And he says, yeah, that's exactly when I learned Torah. That even the times that I wasn't able to learn Torah, I was constantly yearning for the Torah. And therefore, the teaching of our rabbis that if I leave the Torah, the Torah will leave me, doesn't apply to me because I never left the Torah. Even when I couldn't involve myself in her, she was always with me. He asked that on his tomb, they shouldn't write any fancy titles about him. The only thing they should write, Avraham Dansi, Shenasa Vinatan Be'emuna, who was honest in all his business dealings. Can you imagine? A financially honest rabbi. Could be such a thing in the world. Avraham Dansi is telling us his whole goal in life was to be honest. And he prefers that should be what's written on his tomb. Riyavram Dansi says that it's not enough for the Jewish person to see the milk uh, being curdled into cheese. 
But he actually has to be involved in that process and turn the milk and the cheese himself. In source four, the Kafachim, Rabbi Yaakov Chaim Sofer, Sephardic commentary to Chanu, he writes, "Vim ha'Yisrael asiyat ha'gevinot ha'chaliva mutar." In source four, on page twelve, if a Jewish person sees the making of the cheese, then it's and, and the milking it's permissible. That's what the Rambam writes. And it's not like the shach that says that a Jewish person has to be making the cheese himself. And he brings many sources. And he quotes the Tiferet the Moshe who says, that all the proofs of the shach are not necessary. Meaning they're not obligatory for me to accept. And all of the reasons why cheese are prohibited in the Talmud would all go away if a Jewish person was watching, and that's why watching is enough to make it uh, permissible. And if the stomach of the animal is of a Jewish person, it belongs to him, and the non-Jewish putting the milk in, the Nodab Yudah says it's also fine. That's assuming that the Jewish person is watching the milk process, meaning the non-Jew can make the cheese as long as the Jew is supervising that. Rabbi Cheska Landau, who was the author of the famous Nodab Bihuda, Nodab Yehuda, he was against all kinds of Kabbalistic influences in his community. And one of the things he really didn't like was that people were getting involved with amulets. They were writing all kinds of magical scrolls and putting them on their necks. There was a certain lady who had lost her mind and she came to the Nodab Yehuda. And she said, I need from you an amulet. You have to write. I said, I don't write amulet. It's not my business. I don't get involved in the stamps. No, you have to. I won't leave here until you... Maybe Pikuach Nefesh is involved here. And so he took a blank piece of parchment and he pretended to write on it. And he rolled it up into a scroll. And he put it in a leather pouch and wear this on your neck for 30 days. And every day, go to the Benakrenza and pray that Kalos Bachushu should heal you. And if on day 30, you open up this uh, amulet and you see that Kalos Bachu has magically erased all of the writing that I put here, uh, then you should know that your prayers were successful and you can now resume normal living. And Kachaya. Rabbi Cheskalanda was writing to one of his students about this opinion of the Shach. And he has a big contradiction with many of the Chachamim who discussed cheese. The Nudab Yuda was a Khalif, he was a very sharp Chacham. And he said many people understood this Uriah incorrectly. Uh, and he says, Ultimately, if you look on page 14, at the end of his words, right before source 6, that all of this opinion of the Shach and the other rabbis who say that a Jew has to be the one to put the milk, uh, the rennet in the milk, it's not the case. The opinion that is factual is the one of the Rambam and the other Kadmonim, the early rabbis who said that as long as the Jews supervise the cheese-making process, the cheese is fine. Rabbi Chiel Michal Halevi Epstein, the author of the Aruch HaShulchan, he comes from Sephardic roots. He, he mentions that his last name, Epstein, before the Spanish Inquisition, was Benveniste. And later in Morocco, that sometimes comes Benisti or Benbenisti or other such variations. So that became Epstein. I think Halberstam, that family, has a similar story about how they used to be Sephardic Jews who ended up in Afghanistan countries. And he says that really the halakha is not like the Shah, it's like the Rambam. And as long as you see the, the cheese making process to this kasher, though he mentions at the end, that if it's possible, then it would be really nice uh, to be able to do it uh, in a way that would work for everybody, also like the shach, and why not get involved? Why, why get involved in that problem? 
So you see the rabbis are pretty split up here regarding the shaf, but the Rambam and Maran, their words stay true in the Rambam. In source 7, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein writes a letter to Rabbi Yosef Tenen, I should have written it in such a day, never I studied for five years uh, by Rabbi Yosef Tenen. Uh, he was the Rosh Hashiva in Mary Israel, Baltimore, at the high school. So maybe four years I studied actively by him. He was a very special man. I can't tell you that I'm a poster child of Yeshiva in Israel or of Rabbi Tenna. Uh, but if you look at my website, I wrote an article about him in which I compare some of the midot that he taught us to the Sephardic approach that I later picked up in the B'Rimdash of Halak Peretz. And maybe if I could forward that link, you're welcome to look at it after the class. Rabbi Tenna, aside from being the Rosh Yeshiva, was also the founder of the first Chalav Yisrael milk company in the United States. And so as it's called Pride of the Farm. That as such, he had many dairy questions that he asked Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. His connection to Rabbi Moshe Feinstein is that his brother, who I believe just passed away recently, uh, Rabbi Moshe Tamer Alav Shalom, he was at Yeshiva University, uh, his, Rabbi, his brother, Rabbi Moshe Tamer, married Rabbi Moshe Feinstein's daughter. So it was the father-in-law of his brother. Rabbi Tamer was, was reading to us in Mishnah, which a person who makes a mistake, they violate halakha mistakenly. They have to bring a korban khatat, a sin offering to the Ben Amigdash. He said his father once told him, why does a person who makes a mistake in halakha, he does sin offering. For which sin? He said for the sin of not knowing halakha. A Jewish person has to be educated. You can't be uneducated. And so even if you made a mistake, of course, it's not held against you the same way as if you did it intentionally. But there still is a mistake that Jewish people think that they can be Jewish without learning about Judaism. And I'm speaking here particularly to those who pretend to observe halakha, but don't learn halakha. So to nobody here, all of you here are learning halakha right now. But to those who are religious with no halakhic backbone, it would be quite troubling to them uh, why they don't learn halakha. So he goes into this conversation about cheeses that a Jewish person didn't see the milking, but only saw the cheese making process, like the Lama mentioned in a very long letter. I quoted to you here only so that you have it in case you want to look at it on your own. I didn't realize how long this letter was. If you look here on page 20, I mean 19, he tells us that in America, in places where we drink milk from Goyim, because we rely on the supervision of the government, halab companies, like we mentioned last week, meaning that we consider the milk around us to be halab Israel because it's, it's, we know for sure that it's milk. You can use that milk to turn it into cheese. And he has another few other points here. But I bring you then to source 20, where Mori Halab Yaakov Peretz writes the following. In source 8, on page 20. In places where the milk of non-Jews is permissible. Like in America, in, in Europe. Yesterday I spoke on the phone. In Europe also. Because there is government supervision on the milk. That if they mix non-kasher milk in there, they will be punished. If there was supervision, that they put kasher rennet into the milk, it's obvious that that cheese is kasher. Now, I bolded the words government supervision, and the second time is that supervision. So if the government supervises the milk, then we can use it to supervise the cheese. Last night, Al-Peretz told me that he intended here that the second supervision was of a Jewish person. So not that we would rely on government supervision to permit the cheese. But while he was on the phone with me last night, he said, you know, 
there is room to say that the government government supervision that we rely on by the milk could also be relied on by the cheese. Though he wasn't comfortable saying that as a halal, but it's something that we're going to discuss again in the future. And I will tell you that even if you will read it that way, uh, first off, it's not Moshe Rabbeinu, so just because he wrote it doesn't mean that the halakha has to be that way. Uh, but I would have a hard time justifying that approach along with the opinion of the Ramban and Maran and uh, others that who would clearly not agree in that situation. I was speaking uh, earlier today with Rabitza, and he told me that possibly uh, there's a way to read it like that, but we will still get there regarding cheese. So if I could summarize right now, before we get our extra reading on page 21. Cheese that comes from goyim is forbidden because of the animal rennet that is used. What if they don't use animal rennet? They use vegetarian rennet or microbial rennet or any other type of rennet. It doesn't make a difference, according to the Rambam, according to Maran, according to the Rama. This cheese is still prohibited by the mere fact that it's a Gvinashul Goyim. And because it's Gvinashul Goyim, then we can't eat it due to a rabbinic decree. It doesn't matter uh, what else might happen, the rules don't apply. Even if the rules don't apply, the decree still applies. And as much as you may have liked me for the last six weeks, I'm certain that I've disappointed some people right now uh, because my uh, opinion here is prohibitive and there's nothing much I could do, like I told you. You can't dance on all the parties. So you can't follow Rambam your whole life. And then when it comes to cheese, you become a follower of Obenita. It just something there is uh, lacking to me. Uh, but I'm sure that people do that. And if you could live with that cognitive distance, maybe you'll have more cheese to eat in the world than I have. Uh, but I'm willing to say that I'd rather be in this camp than in another camp. And that brings us to the next question. And that is something that I don't have a real answer for you. I want to bring you a, you know, a, a collection of Kukamim that discuss various other types of cheeses, and to ask the following question. What makes a cheese a cheese? Understand my question? We have things like mozzarella cheese, parmesan cheese. We also have things like ricotta cheese and cottage cheese and sour cream cheese. Is cream cheese cheese? Are yogurts cheeses? What about lebin? Is that cheese? Cream? That's turned into a nut sour. If you ever made that Persian home and you've had uh, the, it's sweet cream, but it's, it's, it's no longer uh, liquidy. It's thick. Are those cheeses? What makes something a cheese that is prohibited and something that's not a cheese? It's just a dairy product that is permitted. I don't have it. If you look at my forum online, every time someone asks me this question, I send them somewhere else. I, like it'll be uh, Yehuda, I'm not comparing myself. I simply, I don't have an answer to this question right now. But I want to show you a few other Chachamim that did discuss these things. So if you look in source one, on page 21, the Chaya Adam, Rabbi Avram Danzig, in his book, Chuchmat Adam, he writes that if you have milk that turned into cheese because they put a rennet inside of it, or you have milk that turns into cheese, memela just because it's been standing out so long in the heat or whatever else, it turns into cheese. It's forbidden. The cheese that curdles itself, I mean the milk that turns itself into cheese, just because it was sitting out for too long, and the milk that was turned into cheese with rennet, both of them are prohibited because they're both under the rabbinic decree against cheese. So the Chuchmat Adam seems not to differentiate between what you might call a hard cheese or a soft cheese. It doesn't really make a difference. As long as it's a cheese, it's prohibited. Baruch HaShulchan says something different. Baruch HaShulchan says, Omnam ladinam, en nafka mina klal, shareh filu im baruhu, shemamidin bilvar etera, sur kosh lel rambam. 
If you know that there is vegetarian rendered in there, it doesn't make a difference. The Rambam said it's not allowed. Then therefore, if you have if you have the cheese in our country, I don't know what cheese he's talking about, but it's cheese that doesn't have any type of hamadat. There's no curdling that is done with rennet. The prohibition still applies because this is the Minyan. There's nothing we could do. So even though in our country it says it's not like here in America where most of the cheese is vegetarian rennet, microbial rennet. There they didn't even have rennet. It's just milk that somehow curdled by the heat or whatever else. Think about a simple cheese. I don't know, like a farmer's cheese or a cottage cheese or something like that. Says the Ukhashukhan, that is also prohibited. It's part of the gazelle. In source three, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, Allah Shalom, writes a letter to his friend, Rabbi Shimon Schwab, Allah Shalom. You might have heard of Rabbi Shimon Schwab. Uh, I think he was the rabbi of the German community in Washington Heights. I used to pray in his Berat sometimes when I would visit my family over there. And he asked him regarding, look at the bottom of page 21, regarding the cheese, now you have to practice your Yiddish transliteration. cheese. It's cottage cheese in Yiddish. I told you orally in our conversations together that there might be reason to be lenient regarding cottage cheese. Because maybe it's not a real cheese that was included in the prohibition of cheese. Because the real prohibition is regarding cheeses where they use the enzymes, the rennet, to make it into cheese. Because that's the main reason here. And it goes about Rabbi Nutan. And if you look at the bottom left, And even though they've told me that in America, for example, they still put some rennet inside of the cottage cheese. Listen to this here. So there is rennet in cottage cheese. So what's the reason Even if you would convince me that rennet is a forbidden substance, you shouldn't consider it the ma'amid, the curdling agent, regarding cottages. Cottages are made by letting the time and temperature. Basically, cottages is spoiled milk. Let's talk, let's say that. Cottages is spoiled milk. I'm sorry to ruin your breakfast for you. Yes? And what happens is that the time and the temperature curdles that milk and turns it to cottage cheese. Says Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, yeah, they add a little bit of rennet. Why? Not because it makes the cheese better. It doesn't give any better flavor or anything like that. They add it. They only do it to hurry the process of the curdling. The factory doesn't want to let the cottage cheese sit there for three days. They'd rather it be done in 15 minutes and send it to the factory to be packaged. And the kalum. And even though they put this rennet, it doesn't count for anything. Because it doesn't help the cheese. And the hu tovat hamokher, on page 20, new at the top, it's not for the benefit of the cheese that they add the rennet, it's for the benefit of the seller that they add the rennet. He says he's only using the cottage cheese, uh, the rennet and the cottage cheese to hurry the process. Then, as such, it's not the same thing as adding rennet in order to make the cheese. If you don't accept this logic, this thing is uh, there's a halachic question regarding something that has two ma'amidim. Two things make it into something. So let's talk about cheese. You have the heat and the temperature that's making it cheese, and you have rennet that's making it cheese. When there's a combination of things, 
then it would be permissible. ויש להחשיב זה רק אם סייע בעלמא שאולי איך אסורים לזה וזה גורם אסור, הווי מתירים כאן. And it could be that this is not a solid answer on its own because there are those who wouldn't accept that. ונמצא שמצד הרנת אין לנו לאסור אלא מצד עצם גזירת הגבינה שאסורה לרמב״ם והמחבר אף בעמידו בדבר המותר. So we're left again only with the prohibition of the Rambam and the Mechaber, who's the Mechaber? When Ashkenazim say the Mechaber, they mean the author of the Shukhanot, they mean Maran. Yes, Maran and the Rambam who say that there's an over umbrella decree on this. Is that according to Rambam and Maran, I would say, Rabbi Moshe Weinstein says, that this cheese is not really cheese that the Chachamim had prohibited and therefore even the Rambam and Maran would accept that this is not real cheese. And then he writes at the bottom here, Mikol Makom, nonetheless, Lemaase, practically, Eni Omer Bezeheter, I'm not telling you it's permissible. Aval Gam Eni Moche Bamekinin, but I also don't rebuke those who are lenient and they buy cottage cheese from the Goyim. Machar Shiyesh Tam Leheter, Vumita Darmanan, because there's logic that allows you to be lenient, and this is only a rabbinic prohibition. In these words, it's only a rabbinic prohibition. There are some geonim that permitted this entirely. And we will include their opinion, even though not to consume the kadachis, but not to rebuke other people who consume this kadachis. I don't feel that there's a need for you, Rabbi Schwab, to tell people that it's prohibited if they didn't ask you. And maybe they may not even listen to you, because they quote so I don't think you should announce that cottage cheese is prohibited. They might not listen to you. I also don't think that you should tell people that cottage cheese is permissible. Just don't get involved. He said, I don't think it's proper to announce to the public that cottage cheese is okay. I'm sorry, Moshe Feinstein. I just read this out loud to everybody. And he says, your friend, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. That's an opinion. And how you reconcile this with what he wrote earlier, you can do your homework on your own at Source 4 on page 22. He writes, In places where they permit non-Jewish butter, how, What will we do with milk that was let to sit for a few days, and the top of the milk congeals, it gets thick? And he used a lot of Yiddish words that I wish my wife was here in the room with me. She would help me translate all of them. Uh, but I don't know Yiddish, so I can't translate any of them. And he mentions there's the milk product that goes on top, there's the leftover at the bottom, there's the liquid that's left. All of them have different names in Yiddish. Is this milk that was just left out on a counter to turn into some homemade, you know, quasi-cheese, is that permissible? Meaning, is it like butter that's permissible, or is it like cheese? And he says in the end, top left of page 22, it appears to me that in far-flung places, where there's not a lot of kosher options for Jews. Then maybe it's permissible. And he says, look in the Plichadash, who permits the Kamaika. I'm certainly butchering the, the pronunciation of this word. There is a food that the Savaradim used to eat called Kamaika or Kamieta. If you know how to pronounce this word, please interrupt me now. Shemdimnat Turki, that in Turkey they used to eat it. And he says, that it's just like butter, and that this soft cheese that they eat in Turkey, that not really, it's not really curdled with rennet, that it is permissible to eat. So I brought you the Prichadash himself. And the Prichadash says that exactly that food that they make in Turkey, which is a curdled milk that sits down on the counter for a few days, and the heat turns it into some type of soft cheese. Imagine like a sour cream of sorts, a soft spreadable cheese. So that is mutal. 
And he mentions that there are many Chachamim who disagree. He quotes them. Uh, and if you look on page 23, he writes, Ani, Ani I don't agree with them. Mechila from this Chachamim who said it's not allowed. I don't agree. If a rabbi would write that today, you know what happened? How dare you say you don't agree with him? He doesn't agree. What is he going to say? He agrees, but he doesn't agree. Because the poskim that came before me, I have a tradition for them, that this is mutal. Who cares that the milk, you could see it. The butter is the same way. We are eating butter, even the ones that are not cooked, like Marat mentions. And then he says here, It's also therefore permissible to permit the milk of the, the water of the milk of Goyim, this would be referred to in English as whey. Have you heard of whey before? So they have uh, cheese. They have milk. You curdle it, and there's cheese. And I'm giving you again a layman's definition. There's a more complex definition of whey. And they take out the cheese. And the liquid that's left behind is used to form whey. And so he says that that's muta. It's mutal, because you know now that it's kasher, and therefore the way of the goyim is permissible. I know there are those who are stringent about it, but and he talks about another form, and he mentions, if you look in the middle of the paragraph, ricotta cheese. Now, I don't know how ricotta was made where he lives, versus how ricotta is made today, but he says ricotta cheese is the classic case of a cheese. The ricotta is not included in the prohibition just because you call it cheese doesn't make it a cheese that our rabbis would have prohibited. And therefore, this ricotta cheese would be mutal. I will tell you that Rabbi Tendler told me, how do I know? Rabbi Tendler sent his grandchildren to learn in Lakewood. And one of the rabbis in Lakewood gave a whole speech. Rabbi Aaron Cutler was makbid on Chal of Israel. And he said, listen, my grandfather told me that Rabbi Aaron Cutler and Neshiva, they used to have even the sour cream from the goyim that was not kasher. Uh, the milk, the sour cream. How could he tell me? Ah, Chazu Shalom. He says he's living by Baron Cutler. They threw him out of the yeshiva. Rabbi Tenler studied by Baron Cutler, and he remembers living in Lakewood and eating the sour cream from the goyim. They didn't consider that to be a problem of cheese that would be prohibited, just like the milk. Havaperet in source six brings a few practical cases. By the butter, he says it's muta. Shamenet of goyim. So the top left of page twenty-three. Shamenet is uh, the cream, like. Um, Say like sour cream. Some prohibit, some permit, and it's like butter. Whatever you do with butter, we are we permit butter. You can also permit the shamir. Leben, eshel, yogurt, dino, kedin, chalal, goyim. All of those are considered just like milk, and they are all mutav. You don't need just like you take the milk from the goyim. You can also do the same thing you do with leben and eshel and yogurt and all of those things. So regarding what is the definition of soft cheeses, I don't have a good answer for you. But there are some people who discuss what is a soft cheese. Is the rennet the main ingredient? Are there two things that are making it an ingredient? Uh, those are interesting things to look at and to think through. And I'm open to having this conversation at a later time. I don't have solid halakhic conclusions for you here. On page 23 on the left, Rabbi Badiyah said he was in a situation. This is the year 1952. About Israel was going through a depression. Kids didn't have what to eat. Rabbi Badiyah said in a very, very long letter, which I recommend you going through if you want to understand how he understood the Ramban and Maran 
and Tosafot and all of those opinions regarding sheets, I brought you the entire letter. So as Rabbi Wadi Yosef does, there's hundreds and hundreds of sources here. But Rabbi Wadi Yosef ultimately says the message of Allah, a lot of sources. On page 32, or 33, on the top of the page 33, Maskana Dudina, the bottom line of the halakha is, we can buy these cheeses that come from outside of Israel. That they use all kinds of powders and, and pills, meaning uh, what you would call today microbial rennet, to turn them into cheese. In years of uh, hunger, meaning in years where the financial situation is not good, you can give them not to adults, but to children. Children are able to eat those cheeses there. The gezera doesn't really apply to those cheeses, especially not to children. There's a long line of uh, thinking that goes here, so don't walk away thinking this is mutai for you. But he did find a situation where he permitted these cheeses. Craft uh, cheese. I'm not interested in reading the whole source, but I found the source uh, that Rabbi Soloveitchik, uh, he ate craft cheese. Famously, Rabbi Soloveitchik in craft cheese, like the classic non-kosher American cheese that's around. It's not the luxurious cheese, it's not a fancy cheese, it's not any special type. This like the regular or whatever, I don't know what the brand would be anywhere else. From the regular cheese out there in the store, uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik, he openly ate these cheeses. Uh, I think I heard there was a time that a yeshiva university, they openly served those cheeses, though I'm certain that today uh, they would tell you the exact opposite, and that's not the case. Uh, but uh, history revision is always wonderful. I brought here something that I'm excited to share with you, and that is on page 34. I'll end the shoe with this on page 34. But if I just make a note of that, Rabbi Soloveitchik and craft cheese, there are a number of hechshalim in America. I'm not going to discuss your hechshalim. I don't do that in public, definitely not in private. Uh, I don't do private, definitely not in public. There's one hechshal you see all over cheeses in America. But, ah, it's kosher. This cheese is kosher. Why, why do you rely on that hechshal? The interesting thing is that that hechshal believes that cheeses that are made with microbial rennets don't require supervision. And as such, they supervise all these cheeses. I mean, their supervision is a non-supervision. They supervise the cheese that doesn't need supervision according to them. And so people say, oh, let me buy that cheese. It has a kosher symbol. Ah, these rabbis fighting with each other. But really, I would tell you, those cheeses are kosher, certainly to Rabbi Nittar. But for Rambam and Maran, uh, those cheeses are absolutely prohibited. And therefore, even though uh, those cheeses may be under supervision, but just because they're under supervision does not mean that they're fit for consumption for Sefaladin or for anybody who's trying to follow uh, the Halakha of the Talmud. On page 34, in 2018, Rabbi Moshe Ben Zaken, my dear friend from Los Angeles, gave me a call. Let me tell you about Rabbi Moshe Ben Zaken. Rabbi Moshe Ben Zaken is the type of man who, if you would put him in a laboratory and try to figure out what is he made out of, only goodness and a heart. is a man who is kulato. I cannot I have words to say how great he is as, as, as a human being. Forget as a chachan. It's also a chachan, but as a human being. I didn't know him in 2015. I was thrown out of my old community. My stuff was put in a dumpster. And my kila members and I had to start a new community. And we had nothing, no money, no books, nothing. Kloom, kloom, kloom. Imagine nothing. We started all over. Shiviti started in February of 2015, but we launched in May, not because we intended to launch, because they threw us out. And I had nothing. I had a community with no Torah, no building. We started praying in my living room. Rabbi Moshe Ben Zaken heard there was a community in San Diego. He's from Los Angeles. There's a rabbi who doesn't have a Torah. He gave me a call. So are you Rabbi Halevi? Yes. 
I was also a Sephardic rabbi that was fired from my community after a few years. Do you have somebody who can come pick up a Sefer Torah for me? He doesn't know me. For all I know, it's some guy in San Diego going to steal his Torah. He sent me this beautiful tens of thousands of dollars, a Spanish-Portuguese Torah, one of the most beautiful Torahs we ever had the honor of having in our community. He sent it to me from Los Angeles. And we had it for a year and a half. Everyone, Rabbi, we still... Says, keep it until you have your own set. And we had our own set. I said, no, keep it still because you need two sifrei Torah for the holidays. How are you going to auction off the things on the holidays without the, having enough money for your community? You need two sifrei Torah. And of course, over time, we became friends. And when I had to put together our betadim in Los Angeles, Havapelitz made a few rules. Which kind of rabbi can you choose to have in your betadim? So we deal with conversions primarily. And Havapelitz's rule was the following. He has to be a Tamil Chacham. What do you mean Tamil Chacham? He has to be a, a Torah scholar that people know. They recognize he has a community, something he has, some position that people know. Fine, one. That was easier to find. There are a lot of rabbis. Rabbis are everywhere. Number two, he has to be a Talmud Chacham who if his halachic rulings are questioned, if one of our conversions are questioned, he will be able to pen the halacha in his own, let's say, to the chief rabbi of Islam. And without me being involved, the independent members of the Bet Adin have to pen their own Teshuvot. They have to be able to do that. That was harder to find. To find the Torah scholar in America, forget who knows how to write in Hebrew, but who knows how to learn halacha well, was very difficult for us. It wasn't so simple. The third, he has to be a good person, a kind person. So no mean people, no people with attitude, no people with ego, no, nice, kind people. That makes it even harder. Now you want a rabbi who's nice and he knows halacha, it's already like, you're, it's a very tall order Rabbi Pelas is giving me. And the final order was the worst though. He has to hate money. Not that he doesn't take money. has to hate money. And that is almost impossible, my friend. I'll tell you, there was two years that Betadin was between Dayanim. We couldn't find the third Dayan. What does it mean, hate money? We do giving. And the amount that we charge for Gil is zero dollars and also zero cents. Not under the table, not over the table, not around the table. It's an industry. Out here in America, I don't know what it's like in the UK or elsewhere, you could charge fifteen dollars to $30,000 to do a Gil. And if we charge that, then we don't have houses and cars and bakon mikonko. But we don't take a penny. Somebody wants to donate forward, fine. There's other gale that needs tifinin and you want to buy him tifinin. Yes, you can give the money to the betadin and we'll buy a, a person a pair of tifinin. That's fine. You can do that. Rabbi Moshe ben Zaken kicked all of those boxes. Not only does he not take money, he loses money. Every time we do a deal, he brings towels for the people. He buys. He goes to buy new towels. He comes to the mikveh with towels. He buys chocolates and candies for the children. Yosef Zarnigan, who's the third member of Abed Adin, two years we're going to have a day on until we found him. Not a penny. And then not a penny. He flies from the other side of the country. Not a penny. Rabbi Moshe ben Zaken asked me to do something. Anything he asked me to do, I'm going to do. Rabbi Moshe runs a kosher certification in Los Angeles, along with his nephew. And they wanted to know, what could we do about cheese factories if all we need is to have a person in the factory watching the cheese-making process? Then what would be the case if we put up video cameras and we watch the cheese making process through closed circuit TV, real live video cameras, would that count? I asked him, he didn't want to get involved. He's like, listen, this is like kosher agency stuff. I don't deal with kosher agencies. The mafia is going to come after me. Like, was, it's a good question. If you wanted to do it yourself, I talked to you. But you want to publicize this as a ruling for the whole world? I'm not interested. This is what you should ask Rabbi Eliyahu Abergel. Rabbi Eliyahu Abergel, is Abed Adin of Yerushalayim. He's retired, but he's still Abed Adin of Yerushalayim. 
And I sat with him a few times in Beradin. Once I saw him, he did a Khalita. He's the last people in the world who knows how to do a Khalita properly. And that's why he comes to the Beradin. And so I asked him this question via my Chavuta, Rabbi Yitzhak Abidbal. He's now a rabbi in Miami. Rabbi Yitzhak Abidbal and I studied my Aferet. And when I left Israel, he went to Rabbi Abidjal to study Dayanut. He's an expert in the laws of Gitim. Rabbi Abidbal posed this question to Rabbi Abidjal. And Rabbi Abidjal wrote him the following answer. He says, this includes all cheeses, butters, everything like that. If you inspect the factory, and you ascertain that there is no animal rennet. They don't use in this factory animal rennet. They only use kasher ingredients here. If you put up cameras and supervise the pouring in of the kasher rennet after that initial inspection, he says it's enough to be considered, uh, if I can find the exact words, he said, you can label these cheeses mehadrin. They're mehadrin kosher as long as you watch them through a video camera and make that inspection. When I called back Haraperes with this letter, Haraperes told me, it's even more than you need. This is already too much, but this is fine. He agrees also. And technically, I have this letter, by the way, because Rabbi Abergel photocopied it and gave me a copy. But it could be that it's already found in a new volume of this tissue book. They wrote the Liala. I haven't seen the later editions that have come out. Yeah, but this has never been published beyond my kihina or beyond Rabbi Moshe ben Zaken until now. And that is that it would be possible to not have to get into sticky situations and find cheeses that are not kasher and we want to make them kasher if kashur organizations were willing to allow us to do these things, to inspect factories, to put up cameras, to be there. I am certain that we could bring thousands and thousands and thousands of types of cheeses to the kasher market that are all kasher because they're kasher anyways. All we need is Riyat Israel, and we'll be able to do Riyat Israel even through a video camera. I told my family here that if they would set it up for me, there's a factory that they found. Forget a camera. I wouldn't go without a camera. They would tell me once a week I have to come watch the rennet. I would do it for free, just so the Jewish community would have a selection of cheeses. Find me a company that makes special cheese, and I, would, I want a penny for it. I just want Jewish people. The Jewish people should have the ability to not feel oppressed by Kashrut, because cheese is that easy. All you need is for it to be kasher and for a Jewish person to supervise it. I'm going to call the shoe. Uh, we're going to end it right now. I want to thank all of you for learning to out with me. And this topic of the shoe is one that I've never had the opportunity to sit down and teach from A to Z. And I really thank you and the Chavua for pushing me to bring notes about it and dig up sources about it. I really appreciate the opportunity to learn with you. I'm here to answer any questions that you might have. And God willing, I look forward to seeing you for our final session next week. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, That was incredible. And it was uh, brilliant to be able to finally get an understanding of that sugiya. Um, so now we're going to take some questions. Uh, if you have any questions, raise your hand and uh, feel free. Any questions? If you have any questions or comments or anything, you're welcome to type in. If not, 